Our Father, we're thankful again for the salvation that has appeared in history because of the incarnation, because of the success of your plan of salvation. We thank you that you have persistently carried out the details of that plan over the centuries and that even today people are being regenerated and recreated due to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Um, last time I mentioned that the, when we summarize the doctrine of the Trinity, how the issue of the divine attribute of love is very much wrapped up with the doctrine of the Trinity. And that, therefore, when people begin to tamper with relationships of subordination and uh, authority structures, such as in marriage, government, family, and that sort of thing, that they tamper, by implication, with the Trinity itself. And um, I uh, mentioned that it was an article that I had seen. I had gotten the wrong one to Mike, and I found the, the part two of the same article in Bibliotheca Sacra that uh, Dr. Carson has given. And it's interesting, he has this little footnote uh, on this lecture uh, where he's talking about the distinct... If you, look at, if you look up how the Father loves the Son, and you look up how the Son loves the Father back, you get a distinctly different pattern. They're not the same. And the, po- the point there is, is that the Trinity has distinctions within it. And, uh, for example, he says, um, the distinction between the love of the Father for the Son and the love of the Son for the Father should be carefully noted. The Father commands, He sends, He tells, He commissions, He demonstrates His love for the Son by showing Him everything so that the Son does whatever the Father does. This is taken right from the Gospel of John. The Son obeys, says only what the Father gives Him to say, does only what the Father gives Him to do, comes into the world as the sent one and demonstrates his love for the Father precisely by such obedience. Not once is there any hint that the Son commissions the Father who obeys. Not once is there any hint that the Father submits to the Son or is dependent on him for his own words and deeds. Historically, in avoiding the trap of Arianism, Christians have insisted that the Son is equal with God in substance or essence, but that there's an economic or functional subordination of the Son to the Father. And then he has a little footnote. Because this matter, and I I relate this to you just to show you that I'm not just making this up, this doctrine of the Trinity is very much related to these other issues that people talk about and never even once think about the linkage with the Trinity. So he has this footnote, because this matter is related to debates about the roles of men and women, currently such a delicate topic, extraordinary publications have appeared in recent years. Royce Grunler denies that there is any fundamental, and this is one of those who would propose, you know, um, a sort of a feminist type agenda. Royce Grunler denies that there is any functional subordination of the son to the father on the ground that each defers to the other. The Father defers to the Son by granting Him what He asks. This is a book published in 1986 called The Trinity in the Gospel of John. But this is a vain attempt to bury under the banner of deference the mass of differences in the description of the roles of the Father and the Son as depicted in the fourth Gospel. 
the request to pick him up at the soccer game does not mean he commands me any way I command him or that my love for him is displayed in obedience to him. Uh, Gilbert Bazikian argues that his opponents in the debate over women's roles are flirting with heresy on this issue since subordinate, and he's, he's coming from the feminist side and he's accusing the traditionalists of flirting, of messing up with the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, uh, Belzikian argues that his opponents in the debate over women's roles are flirting with heresy on this issue since he says subordination in the Godhead does not reach back into eternity past but is restricted to the incarnation which teaches both men and women self-denial for the sake of others. This man's article was hermeneutical bungee jumping by the way. Subordination in the Godhead in the Journal of Evangelical Theological Society. Well, Dr. Carson comments on these two articles and he says, in conclusion, it is difficult to find many articles that so richly combine exegetical errors, historical misconceptions, and purple prose in so finely honed a synthesis. And what he's talking about here is that these people insist, I mean, they're, they're thinking logically that you can't tamper with something over here without tampering with something over here. So at least, you know, it's, it's nice that somebody, the people who are thinking about this, it's not just some superficial issue. Well, tonight we want to leave um, all of that which we've dealt with, with the birth of the king. We've talked about that introduced hypostatic union, which in turn we had to deal with the Trinity because we couldn't digest the God-man nature without uh, dealing at the same time with a triune God. Because if God the Son is talking to God the Father, and he was in his incarnation, um, then we've got a distinction in the Godhead or one of them isn't God. So, um, that's why we had to get into the Trinity and that historically is why the church got into the Trinity. church didn't sit around and, gee, that Trinity is a nice idea. We'll adopt that. That's not quite how it happened. It happened very reluctantly over many centuries to synthesize this, this scripture and get it in some sort of coherent form. Well, tonight we're going to start with chapter 3. We're going to go to the second event now, which is the life of the king. We talked about the birth of the king, primarily the virgin birth, and we said that men react uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ's revelation, and they don't embarrass Christ. They don't uh, demean God in any way. I mean, they may think they are, but they certainly don't. All that men do that reject the revelation in Jesus Christ, all they have ultimately accomplished is they just simply reveal the unbelief of their own hearts. And that's the approach we want to take in this series. So on page 47 of chapter 3, we start working our way through features in the life of Christ. And tonight, we're going to look at the appearance of the king, and then we're going to immediately slide into the objections to this uh, autobiography, this biography, autobiography in the sense Holy Spirit um, is the author of the New Testament. But we want to um, pick up on how unbelief handles Jesus Christ. We live in a world, intellectually, culturally, and in all ways, that ultimately disbelieves. So we want to examine very carefully how the greatest revelation in human history occurred and men turned against it. And we want to study what is wrong with the human heart here. What is going on that when God himself walks on this planet, he's not recognized. So we're taking a slightly different tack than just simply presenting a biography of Jesus Christ. Um, 
the, the point that you want to remember, and we'll go over this dozens and dozens of times in this chapter and the chapters to come, Here, here's the crux of the issue with the life of Christ. The objections to the life of Christ primarily come from a disbelief in any revelation. In other words, Jewish people who rejected Jesus had already rejected revelation through Moses. It wasn't some new thing that they suddenly had discovered. It was rather that they had already totally misread the Old Testament. And because they had totally misread the Old Testament, they had basically, in function everyday life, denied that God had spoken. And because of that, they had become enmeshed in tradition and so on. So the issue here is the revelation of God in Christ is greater in degree than in the Old Testament. But it's not different in kind. It's more of the same thing. There's a continuity between Jesus and the Old Testament. So a rejection of Jesus is a rejection of the Old Testament. We want to link those two together. And remember, when you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when you read about the fights and the arguments and the debates that are going on, it's not just over Jesus. The debates and the arguments are fundamentally over all revelation, the whole corpus of revelation. So by seeing those debates, we can understand our own problem in that apart from regeneration, we'd be doing the same thing. And people who are in our families and in our neighborhoods and our workplaces who are not yet Christians, they're thinking on the same frequency. This is the frequency of the world system. There's a reluctance to believe that God can speak. And on page 47, the ultimate insult to this unbelieving position is that God can speak through an ass. And that's Numbers 22. It's a neat verse to remember. Balaam's ass. Because at that point in Old Testament history, God spoke through an ass. So if God can speak through an ass, God can speak through any other person. And it's an easy to see, and it's slightly a sarcasm, because it is, and the Holy, the Holy Spirit has sort of a sanctified sarcasm in recording history and writing it. And he has sort of a humor to it. And it's a really a funny incident from the standpoint of the history of Revelation. This man, the prophet Balaam, rejecting God, all screwed up, uh, wandering around, and God has to speak to this man through his pet jackass. Now, that ability of God to do that underscores his totality that he has control of that creation which he has designed. He has control over animals. He can speak through animals if he has to. But God has created men in his image. So if he can speak through an ass, he should be able to speak through a man. In the garden, what did God speak through? What did Satan speak through? Satan spoke through something that we now call a serpent. Except in those days, whatever this thing was, it had legs. And then it says part of the cursing was that zoological, uh, morphological change that happened because of the fall of man. And that affected the animal kingdom. And in particular, it affected that whatever this thing was that, that Satan had basically incarnated himself in. In the New Testament, demons can occupy pigs, showing clearly that demonic powers can occupy animal bodies, apparently to the degree that they have a developed central nervous system. So this, this goes on. And so there's no implicit reason why God can't fully speak through a man. 
So what we want to say is that the people who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament, many of the fine people that we meet in the Gospels, were people who were simply godly Jews to start with. Jesus wasn't introducing anything basically and qualitatively new. Now, there's some terms, vocabulary terms, that we're going to use for the next two or three weeks. Two words. I want to define these words because they are words that are tools to help us think precisely about the issues of unbelief and what's going on in the Bible. We're going to talk about what we call the historical Jesus. Now, these are terms that I didn't make up. These are terms that largely critics have made these terms up. This is the vocabulary of criticism. Your child goes to college, university, this is what they're going to hear. Uh, Go to a Christian college, it's sloppy, they'll hear it there too. Um, Except they pay twice the tuition at Christian college they do in secular college. Um, The historical Jesus is a term that refers to, quote, the real guy the carpenter that walked around Palestine. Then there's another term that is thrown around, the charismatic Christ. What's that mean? The word charismatic comes from a Greek word meaning preached. It means that that, the the preached Christ. So... When, we use, when you hear this term, the charismatic Christ, what you are hearing is the charismatic Christ is the picture of Jesus that we read in the New Testament. The charismatic Christ, the preached Christ, the Christ of the apostles, the Christ of the church, the Christ that was preached throughout the Mediterranean world. And the issue in New Testament criticism and attacks and assaults is whether one equals two. That fundamentally, boiled down in a nutshell, is where the argument is. Those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have been led by the Spirit of God, whose hearts have been opened by God, know very well that one is two. That these two cannot be separated that were we to go back in a time machine and observe the Lord Jesus, we would have seen Him do many, many things not recorded in the Bible, but nothing, nothing that would say that the picture we have here isn't the picture of the real historical Jesus. But critics universally say that one is not equal to two. That the charismatic Christ is that which the church created from the original historical Jesus. The historical Jesus might have been an ordinary Jewish carpenter that somehow got deified, uh, somehow became a martyr, somehow people began to think of him as God, and so forth and so on. So two, in the critical view, is built up out of the raw material of one. In fact, some critics have gone on record as saying they don't even believe one existed. That Jesus was a pure fiction. It was just something that made up. Marvelous how we know that, you know. Uh, we have such great command of history that we know all those details. Um, but the issue to track, to keep your eye on the target as we go now through the forest and look at different trees, here's where you want to focus. In all that we say and do and we read in the Gospels, we are reading the charismatic Christ 
through the pages of Scripture. The question is, is the historical Jesus that really lived the same person as the charismatic Christ? So, that's why when we come down on page 48 to the unbelieving responses to the king's life, we want to watch the bifurcation. Here's where it starts. Here's where there's antagonism, there's unbelief, and we want to see that. And I've organized the material, page 48, as the ancient response to the king, and then later, the modern response to the king. So we're looking at, in time, the ancient response, that is, his contemporary Jewish peers, and how they responded to Jesus, and how the modern critics respond to Jesus. Now, what infuriated the Lord, the, the, the people of his time, if you look down at the bottom of page 48, we're going to get into some passages of Scripture here in just a moment. But if you'll follow with me on, on the bottom of page 48. During the days when the king spoke and performed miracles, a Jewish backlash arose from his threatening challenge to their popular religious views of the day. Jesus' threat can be seen in many areas. His assault upon Pharisaic legalism, his radical interpretation of the Jewish scriptures, particularly his innovative picture of the Old Testament Messiah, and his stubborn, bold claim of implicit authority for whatever he taught. I focus simply on those three issues. It could be more, probably dozens more, but for our sake, because we can't go off into everything, we're going to just track those and discuss those three things. So now the first paragraph, we will turn to John chapter 4. Jesus' social life. This was, a, this was a terribly controversial aspect of Jesus. This is one of the things that profoundly offended the religious people of his time. This is, this is said over and over in the pages of the Gospels. Can't miss it. There are several places where this occurs. I'm going to show you two kind of things about Jesus' social life that bugged the contemporary Jew. One was his relationship to women. And the other one was his smashing of the bureaucracy around the Sabbath. In John chapter 4, beginning at verse 7, we have the woman at the well incident. Now this is particularly interesting because Jesus, when he's getting the water from this well through this woman, he's actually in a, in a non-Jewish ghetto area. In fact, this very place in John 4 where he's doing this, Jacob's well, is one of the places we read about in the newspapers where all the rioting occurs. This is where the Israelis are always pumping rubber bullets at the Arab-Palestinians because this is where they're always throwing rocks at the Israeli soldiers. So it's still to this very hour, it's a non-Jewish area, that's very controversial and a lot of street demonstrations. People have been shot and killed right within 100 yards of Jacob's well. Still, it's an area festering and seething with social chaos. Well, it, it, the Samaritans weren't liked in, in the days of, uh, of Jesus. And in John 7, uh, John 4 rather, verse 7, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me to drink. For his disciples had gone away in the city to buy food. Verse 8 is, sets us up. John the Apostle wants us to see the scene. And so he's very careful to describe something is abnormal about this from the standpoint of a Jewish rabbi. 
If Jesus was a genuine Jewish rabbi, he would never have been caught socially alone with a woman. Not in public. And probably not in private. They're very careful about that. So here, all of his disciples take off, and the rabbi is unchaperoned, and along comes this woman, and he starts talking to her. Not only does he, does he, is he close to this woman, but he, asks, he starts a conversation. And of course, we have often preached through John 4 in our churches that this is evangelism, and it was. And Jesus was w- interested in winning this woman to, the, to himself. This is an evangelistic passage. She, he's sharing the gospel with her. But what we want to look at tonight is the dynamic that's going on here about this Jewish rabbi without his disciples in an unchaperoned state with this woman where nobody sees all this. I mean, it's out in public, but there's nobody kind of watching the scene here. And the conversation goes on, and you've all read through this passage. Um, She said, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. Verse 11, the well's deep. Where do you get that living water from? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Gave us the well, drank of it himself, his sons and his cattle. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. One of the most eloquent pictures of the gospel. No works here. There's nothing that the woman has to pledge. She's to freely drink of the water of life. What an eloquent picture of the gospel. It's all us doing the receiving. We don't give. The woman doesn't contribute anything to this. He says... Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to everlasting life. In other words, I give you a drink, woman, I give you the well. The well and the drink come with this. And the woman said, Sir, give me this water so I won't be thirsty or come here all the way to draw. And then he goes and pay, in, in, in verse 16, 17, and he has a dialogue with her because he has to show her He's not trying to humiliate her, but he's just trying to make her aware of why she needs eternal life. That it's not just a physical thing, but she has a more deeply spiritual problem. Go call your husband and come here. And the woman said, I have no husband. And she said, he said, you well have, I have no husband. For you had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. And this you said truly. Just like the modern people, she's living shacked up, and she doesn't have the IRS rules to justify it. Here... We have a similar scene, and she's all of a sudden confronted with Jesus, this man, this Jewish man, who asked her for a drink, and he begins to tell her her biography. John the Apostle is very good. By the way, where do you suppose John got this conversation from? It says in verse 8 that none of the guys were around. So how do you think that John ever recorded this conversation? must have been because Jesus shared the conversation. And this tells you something else. Jesus was interested in teaching how to do things to his, with his disciples. He probably shared the story to tell them and teach them how to be winsome in their conversation, how to lead people to Christ. And he said, let me tell you what I did with this woman. And he went on and told him the story. That's the only way John would have known this, right? John wasn't there. Verse 8 tells us John wasn't on the scene. So... The woman gets into religious questions and we, we remember all the sermons and so forth and so on. And, and it, the passage comes on down and the woman, verse 25, admits that she has this messianic awareness. I know that Messiah is coming and when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. 
And John, in his eloquent gospel, records this one sentence of Jesus to the woman. He says, I who speak to you am he. A clear identification of Jesus' own messianic claims. Now, verse 27 is injected as a sandwich to verse 8. In verse 8, the disciples had left. In verse 27, the disciples come back. Now, when the disciples come back and they see their rabbi in an unchaperoned situation talking to this woman, verse 27, even the born-again disciples, being good Jews, have a problem with this. This is not acceptable social behavior in their eyes. So, verse 27, the disciples came and they wondered, they marveled that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, why do you seek or why do you speak with her? In other words, they, they were kind of wondering about this, but they didn't quite have the courage to say, uh, Lord, I don't think this is pretty appropriate. That's what they wanted to say. And the disciples, and probably John did too, because John's the author here. So the woman left her water pot, went to the city, and said to the men, and she brought down half the village with her. Well, the story is, we could, we're not looking at it evangelistically tonight. All we're looking at is seeing the scene. And to show you that Jesus in his personal life made people uncomfortable. He made particularly religious people uncomfortable. So we want to look at another similar passage. Uh, let's turn to uh, Luke chapter 7. This was another kind of the same thing. Evidently, one of the Pharisees was very curious about the Lord Jesus. They weren't all angry with him from the start. And he, he uh, decided he'd have a, a social event. And he invited Jesus to the party. So the Pharisee has a party in his house, a social gathering, and he invites the Lord Jesus. Which, by the way, shows that Jesus was uh, the kind of guy that socialized. John the Baptist didn't. And the Gospels note that. Two different personalities. And uh, Jesus says, you know, you people are in very interesting people. You object to John because he's an ascetic and he doesn't go to parties. And then you object to me because I do go to parties. Why, what's your problem here? No matter what we do, you're always objecting. So here the Pharisee throws a party, invites the Lord Jesus. Now in verse 37, an unnamed woman, who probably is identified in John 12 as a parallel reference, Behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's home, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. He kept, and she kept wiping them with the hair of her head, kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. Now, what has she done with her hair to be able to wipe his feet? She's let it down. Now, this is another thing, if you read in the culture of the time, for a woman to let her hair down, we use that expression, let your hair down, to be relaxed. And it's a position where you're socially relaxed and you know the person. So here this woman is and she's letting her hair down and wiping Jesus' feet, touching his body. And this Pharisee is sitting over here looking, what is going on? You know, I, I threw this party and I didn't expect this kind of behavior. Not from the guest of honor. And so the Pharisee says in verse 39, who invited him, he said to himself, if this man were a real prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who's touching him. That she's a sinner. Now, it's interesting. Notice in verse 39, does the Pharisee say this out loud? He says it 
to himself. Look at the next verse, however. And Jesus answered and said to him, notice the word answer. The Pharisee said it to himself, but Jesus answers to him. Jesus looks over at the guy and he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Go ahead. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave both. Which of them would love him more? Well, I suppose the one he forgave more. You judge correctly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, notice what he's doing here. He turns physically to look at this woman who's wiping his feet with her hair. But then he says to Simon, see there's a split focus going on here. He looks to the woman, but he talks to Simon. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You didn't give any water for my feet. She's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil. She anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who has forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, now he turns, after talking to Simon, and he makes one of these statements that really frost the people. And we've already kind of introduced why. Remember when I was arguing why, that, why do we know that Jesus is God? What was one of the things? One of the proofs that Jesus claims to be God. Because not only is he substituted in Old Testament passage of Yahweh, but what was the second reason? It was because he does things only God could do. So here he does, he has this conversation with Simon, and then he turns and he talks to the woman, he says, your sins have been forgiven. And those who were reclining at him began to say to themselves, who is this person who forgives sins? What is going on with this guy? So I think you can see the Gospels are, are, are yelling at us to notice that Jesus' personal life was revelatory. Not only in what he said, it wasn't just he gave great sermons, but when he lived his life out, the very lifestyle that he chose bothered people. It really bothered people that he would do these things. Now, another one, one of my favorite passages, in Matthew chapter 12. I always think of this as, this is kind of neat. You have to understand, I worked for the government for 20 years, and watching all the intricacies of the bureaucracy from the inside. And here we find an example of Jesus dealing with bureaucracy. Because the Pharisees, and I can only compare them with lawyers, because in our society the only people that deal with nitpicky technicalities are lawyers and bureaucrats and regulators of government agencies. And they get into the minutia, the absolute minutia. And you get, if you're in, in the, the club and you see all this going on, you think just these guys major on minors and minor on majors. I had a friend who was in a, in a, had a company in downtown Baltimore. And uh, he was in there one day and the uh, people showed up from the state OSHA group looking at the fire extinguishers. And they came in there with their tape measures and they were measuring to make sure the fire extinguishers were the right height. And he noticed, uh, the, the inspector did, that there were two hooks on the fire extinguisher. One a low hook, one a high hook. And he asked my friend, well, why do you have two hooks for the fire extinguisher? He said, oh, that's simple. The moment you go out of here, I'm going to put the fire extinguisher up on the top hook because tomorrow the federal inspector is going to come along. He's got a different set of rules. He says, whatever day it is, fire extinguisher's up here, fire extinguisher's down here. You name it. Because he, he, this guy's great to work with. Um, he likes to make a joke 
out of the regulations, showing how stupid, how absolutely self-contradictory and stupid they are. Well, in Matthew 12, we have a similar type situation. Here, the Lord who gave the Sabbath... Why was the Sabbath given in the first place? What does it say in Genesis? It's a day of relaxation, day of rest. The Pharisees had to define all of the legal niceties of what R-E-S-T really meant. And so they had thousands of regulations. You had to interpret the interpretations. I have a book this thick at home called The Mishnah. You ought to read the section on the Sabbath in there. It tells you how to uh, fry eggs on rocks in the street because if you do it with the sun on beating down the rock and you heat your food up that way, that's like you spilled it and that's not, that's not work. But if you go in your kitchen and heat work up, that's, you can be stoned for that. And you've got to watch the difference here. Real different. I have to have three and a half lawyers to tell you which one to do here. Right? They've lost the big picture. Something's wrong here. So Jesus... Verse 1, chapter 12, goes through the grain fields. His disciples became hungry, and they began to pick the heads of grain and eat. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now think about the humor of this thing for a moment. Who are they telling about the laws of the Sabbath here? The Lord Jesus Christ. Who was it that gave the Sabbath? He is the ultimate interpreter of the Sabbath. He's the one that gave it. But see, the arrogance of these regulators, the arrogance of these attorney-type people that think they can rule over everybody's personal life in 18 different digits. And so here it is. They're telling him what is not lawful. They remind you of the lawyers today in courts telling us what the founding fathers of the Constitution meant. Alexander Hamilton and uh, the guys that put the the debate, made of this George Madison and the rest of them. You know, you'd think... You would love to see a play someday where these guys come up from the dead and listen to this stuff going on in the courtroom about what the Constitution meant. You know, they say, hey, wait a minute, guys. That's not what we meant. Didn't you read this thing? Well, this is what's going on here. Verse 3. What does Jesus say? Hey, you guys, did you ever read what David did when he became hungry and his companions? You know, interpret the Bible in context. How he entered the house of God, they ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful to me, nor for those with him, nor the priests alone. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests of the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? Now, what, if, if he had just stopped here, he would have probably caused a fever up to about 102, with blood pressures building up to 120 maybe. But Jesus didn't stop here. He had to go on and say this next nasty thing. And this thing really freaked him out. Not only was he saying... You guys, you know, you profess to be students of the Scripture and apparently you haven't even read it. You've read a lot about the Bible. You've read what Rabbi so-and-so said about Rabbi so-and-so who said something else about Rabbi so-and-so before him. But you haven't read the Scripture. So in verse 2 and 3, or verse 3 and 4 rather, Jesus indicts the religious authorities for their lack of Bible knowledge. He's about ready to cut their legs off here. Then he cuts in the next verse... But I say unto you that something greater than the temple is here. Now think of the implication of what that statement is. Now David did this for the temple. Now I'm better than the temple. Can you imagine if you were a Pharisee and you were locked into this kind of thinking how that would sound to you? Who does this 30-year-old guy from Nazareth think he is? What kind of smart aleck is this guy? 
But if you had known, but if you had known what this means, I desire compassion, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now that's that's got a lot of theology in it. We can't stop tonight to un, unpack what's in that title. We'll do that maybe if we have time later or next fall. But the Son of Man is a loaded term in Scripture. Jesus has just really offended. And then in verse ten, you see what's the next thing? Now he's going to heal on the Sabbath. So, so now, now we get into deeper water. Verse 22, there's, a, there's a, a, a demon-possessed man that comes. And now we're getting into a big argument about whether Jesus uses Satan or something to, to cast out the demon. So it gets really hot in here. This is a very controversial section. So the first category we've looked at tonight is his social life, his relationships with women, his almost trampling down under his feet the religious regulations of his time. Now, we want to um, look, if you look at the notes, it's quicker to go through them in, in this next section, page 49. Um, here at the chapel, we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount several times. And so it, it's obvious what's going on here. Jesus claimed that such traditions as public behavior rabbis and detailed scriptural regulations were mere human distortions. He insisted that the Ten Commandments of the Old Testament had to be removed from obscuring tradition and retaught once again in their original spiritual sharpness. The Fourth Commandment must be understood as establishing a day of refreshing rest for man rather than a day of further religious burden. The Fifth Commandment, honor thy father and thy mother, had to be rescued from religious gimmicks. Um, Let's turn here to Matthew 15. This is a gimmick that was undermining the parent-child relationship in the name of religion. This is a cute one. It's called the Korban gimmick. And it's in Matthew 15, verse 4, 5, and 6. What had happened here was, the Jews had this deal where, um, if, for example, the best way to say this um, would be, imagine a situation where your parents are relatively poor. And you've hit it off well. And in this society, they didn't have Social Security or anything else. The parents were, if they were impoverished, they were impoverished on the children. And so you would get a lot of money together, and to avoid giving that to your parents, you could use the Korban gimmick, which said that, well, I dedicate this money to the Lord. And you could put a sort of a religious hedge around it. Now, that's what's in the background of Matthew 15. He says, verse 3, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? God said, Honor your father and your mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever shall say to his father or mother, Anything of mine you might have been helped by has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or his mother. Thus you've invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. That's the Korban gimmick. And it was used apparently in many, many families to disinherit, in the reverse sense, to, to excuse taking care of the elderly in your family. All in the name of religion and God and all the rest of it. And Jesus didn't put up with that. The sixth and seventh commandments, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery. And in the Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus do? He takes it back to mental attitude. He takes it all the way back down. The, the killing one there, you remember what the rabbis were saying? Don't kill lest you become in danger of the court. You see the lawyer mentality there? In other words, you've got to watch out if you kill somebody because they're going to come after you. 
Well, yeah, that's true, but that's trivial, isn't it? I mean, if we're talking about men made in God's image and you wipe one of them out. See, you know, we're seeing this in Colorado, you know. You keep on teaching kids that men have are evolved apes and you keep demeaning the high Christian value of man and then people start acting that way and they oh, gee, why did this happen? Well, I mean, come on. Ideas have consequences. So, it was the same thing in Jesus' day. They had trivialized the Word of God. So, it wasn't the issue of killing and that you had wiped out an, uh, someone made in God's image. That wasn't the issue. The issue was, were you going to get caught or not? And so that's why Jesus said, never mind getting caught by the courts. not that issue. The issue is, if you sin in your heart, it starts with hatred. Murderers don't happen, unless it's a manslaughter thing or something. I don't think murder is a sin that happens overnight. It's bred through hatred, through loss of control, through lack of using one's conscience to discipline their thinking. And hatred runs deep. And it's nourished. And it's nourished again and again and again. And finally it bursts out in a murderous act. But it didn't happen overnight. It takes days, weeks, months, years to prepare to murder someone by, by our behavior, by our thinking. This is why the Bible hits again and again upon the inner mental attitude because that's where it all starts. So Jesus went through and he, he said that the traditions of his time were basically obscuring the power of the original word of God. Now in verse, uh, in, on, on, so verses Matthew 24, 12, rather, verses 3 and 4, if you come back to Matthew 12, I want to show you uh, another little thing that Jesus did that angered the people of his time. What he did was he claimed that all of the Old Testament motifs were fulfilled in him. Now, we just saw this in Matthew when he said, verse 6, something greater than the temple is here. What he's doing, he's taking all that we learned back two or three years ago, remember about the temple, and uh, it was the place of Jehovah, it was the glory of Shekinah, Shekinah glory came to the temple, it was the place where they worshipped, the place where it became the unity of the theocracy, and he has the audacity to say that something greater than the temple is here? You see the power of what Jesus said? We've got to learn to read the Gospels, not just as biography, but you've got to get to the, the cues of the controversy. This is highly controversial material going on in the Gospels. It's not just normal biography. Um, f- further on in this chapter, in uh, verse, um, uh, verses, uh, verse 42... Uh, is another passage. Um, well, there's another one in 39. Let's look at verse 39 of chapter 12. An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given it but the sign of, the pro- of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What is he saying? He's saying that the whole book of Jonah, the whole motif of those three nights, forecast and is a pattern, set up a pattern that he, the Son of Man, is going to fulfill. He fulfills the structure of the book of Jonah. He fulfills... Sheba. 
shall rise up with this generation at judgment and condemn it, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Remember what we said, the golden era of Solomon in our Old Testament history? He was the pinnacle. He was the king of the culture. He was a picture, really, of the, of the kingdom of God that would come culturally. And what Jesus says is, I'm greater than Solomon. That Solomon points to me. The temple points to me. The book of Jonah points to me. David and all of his wanderings points to me. You see why? Jesus picked up a lot of enemies. Every time he said something like this, he infuriated yet another group of people. In Matthew 13, 13, is another one of these passages. He says, and, and by the way, Matthew 13 is a, is a transition. All the Gospels you want to read, uh, if you want to kind of diagram a Gospel, uh, kind of looks like this, <clears throat> that it builds up to a midpoint and then it falls away. Jesus becomes more popular and then there's this massive confrontation. In this case, Matthew chapter 12 is the boundary line in the Gospel. And at that point, the public turns against Jesus. And then after that, Jesus begins a new tactic. He starts talking more intimately to a smaller group. It's no longer the great public proclamations. And in, in 12, that was the rejection. that They had it. Uh, they turned on him. They said he threw demons out with the power of Satan. And so now, in, in Matthew 13, Jesus starts what he explains in verse 13. He says, Now I speak in parables, because while seeing they do not see, while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand, in their case the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled which says, and he quotes a passage in Isaiah. When did Isaiah write? Remember Old Testament history? He wrote during the fall of the kingdom period. What was the role of Isaiah the prophet? 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 He was to what? He was God's convicting and prosecuting attorney over covenant violations. And so Isaiah had this passage in his book where he's saying that God God pronounces a sentence. You people, you turn against the Word of God, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to preach more of it to you because I've found out something about you. Every time you hear the Word of God, you turn against it. So you know how I'm going to harden your heart? I'm going to give you more of the Word and more of the Word and more of the Word. And you're going to get your heart so hard it'll be like stone. So God actually in Isaiah curses by preaching the Word of God. He deliberately applies, turns up the content of Revelation, the light, the intensity of the light, to blind the people. Well, look what Jesus is doing though in verse 13 and verse 14. What He's saying by citing this Isaiahic passage is that He is revealing God in the same way that God was revealing Himself in Isaiah's day and it's having the same effect. It's blinding people. So, it's it's subtle, but look at the analogy He's doing here. He's claiming that He is the same kind of awesome revelation that God was giving through the prophet Isaiah and even more so. So now He's compared Himself to the temple. He's compared Himself to Solomon. He's compared Himself to David. And now, in the days last, he's comparing himself to the end of the kingdom period when God was turning up the heat on Revelation. So, this is what really irked people. So, that's why in our notes in page 49 um, was that Jesus interpreted the Scriptures that in that all Revelation was fulfilled in himself. Now, if you turn to page 50, um, we'll look at some quotes here. This is a... 
a scholar that had done a lot of research on the life of Christ. And R.T. France concluded, Jesus saw His mission as the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. Not Now, here's the key. Look carefully at the sentence here. We, we haven't just got through saying Jesus fulfilled certain prophecies. That He did. No question. He was born in Bethlehem. Prophecies say the Messiah was born in Bethlehem. But the passages you just read in Matthew 12... Those weren't re- you couldn't classify those as real prophecies, could you? They were patterns. And Jesus had the audacity to not only claim that He fulfilled prophecy, but He claimed that He fulfilled the fundamental patterns of the Old Testament. Where did Israel come from? The Exodus came out of Egypt. What does Matthew 2 say that Mary fled with the genocide to save Jesus? She fled to where? Egypt. And so, the Matthew cites, out of Egypt I have called my son. That's an Old Testament passage. You would never have thought that's a prophecy. That's a pattern. The redeemed nation comes out of Egypt. Yet Jesus, in his personal life, goes through the same structural pattern that Israel and nation went through. Okay, that's what France is talking about here. And he says, not just of those which predicted a coming redeemer, but the whole sweep of Old Testament ideas. Very important sentence. The whole sweep of Old Testament ideas. The patterns of God's working which the discerning eye could trace in the history and institutions of Israel were all preparing for the great climax which prophets foretold. And in the coming of Jesus, all this was fulfilled. Then he goes on to point out passages like Isaiah 53, Daniel 7, Psalm 110... Um, these are all the key Old Testament passages. We covered those when we were going through the Old Testament. Remember Isaiah 53, the suffering servant passage? Daniel 7, um, that's the Son of Man that comes before the Ancient of Days in, in heaven in Daniel's vision. Uh, Psalm 110, you remember? Psalm 110, David says, The Lord said to my Lord. Well, who is it? Who's the Lord of David that the Lord's talking to? So, Jesus identifies himself. And so, France, in the second quote on page 50 says, In the Jewish world of the first century A.D., Jesus of Nazareth was a man apart. While second to none in his reverence for the Scriptures, his diligent study of them and his acceptance of their teachings, he yet applied the Old Testament in a way which is quite unparalleled. The essence of his new application was that he saw the fulfillment of the predictions and foreshadowings of the Old Testament in himself and his work. Such a use of the Old Testament was not only original, it was revolutionary. It was such, and here's the key to response, it was such that a Jew who did not accept it must violently oppose it. It is not surprising that a community founded on this teaching soon found itself irreconcilably divided from those Jews who still look forward to a coming Messiah. The third area... Of, of what we'll say is the offending things that Jesus did. Not only was he socially offensive, but he was offensive, as we've said, in his interpretation of Scripture. And this is why C.S. Lewis made the point back years ago. He said, don't come to me. He's talking to non-Christians. Don't come to me and tell me Jesus was a good teacher. Don't come to me and tell me he's a good person. He says, a person who said the sort of things that Jesus Christ said was either a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg or he's the son of God himself. But one thing he can't be, he can't be just a good person. 
So next time you see, remember these things about the life of the king. Don't let some contemporary person try to tell you, well, I don't believe that Christian stuff, but I think Jesus was a good person. You can turn to him and say, Jesus could have been, he, he was a jackass and a lunatic and a bastard. Or he was the son of God. But he was not a good person. Period. Just throw that into the conversation and watch what happens. See, you've got to stimulate people because they won't read the Bible if you don't do something like that to anger them enough to say, well, maybe you're right. I'll see that. We're doing good. So, get them into the Word. And direct their attention to the fact that that is a stupid statement. Any person who sees this kind of text with these kinds of incidents, with this kind of almost arrogance, what do you explain a 32-year-old Jewish man, relatively young, walking around and saying these things? that all the Old Testament is fulfilled in Him. Now, come on. It divides people. So that's what we want to do. The Holy Spirit structured the New Testament to relay a story. And we have to remember that because we get uncomfortable when sometimes we offend people. I mean, none of us like to offend people. Not when we're walking in the Spirit. We don't want to offend people. But yet, there come those times when to stand for the truth and grace, even in your own family... You stand up for the truth and it's, it's tough because people peel out and you suddenly become the black sheep of the whole operation. And you just live this way as the black sheep of the family. Everybody criticizing for finding all kinds of faults with you. But if you do it because you're sticking to the scriptural truth in a gracious way, not a stupid way, in a gracious way, then that's, that's a work of God. Because God in the life of Christ certainly worked, didn't he? Did Jesus offend people? Did he divide homes? Did he divide towns? Did he get people so mad they were willing to stone him? Absolutely. Was it because he was nasty? No. It was because he had this quiet, truth and grace personality and he lived according to Scriptures and that was what offended people. They thought it was just a Jewish carpenter, but it was deeper than that. The offense of Jesus is profoundly deep. Well, what mostly we want to conclude tonight in the bottom of page 50 is the third area that offended them is his authority. If you turn to Matthew 7, 28, after he got through the Sermon on the Mount, there's this comment, two verses at the end of that sermon. And, and he sort of summarized this characteristic of Jesus. After they had listened... Who, by the way, this is really the second Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? Remember what the first Sermon on the Mount was? In the Old Testament. What mount? Mount Sinai. So isn't it significant? See, if you, you know your Old Testament, you pick up the pattern. See, it's very significant that Jesus goes to a mountain and addresses the people. He did that in the Old Testament. The Son of God spoke from Mount Sinai in Hebrew to a million and a half, two, three million Jewish people. And that was the first Sermon on the Mount. And what was the subject of the second Sermon on the Mount, really? The first one, wasn't it? What did Jesus do in the second Sermon on the Mount? He clarified his first sermon that people misunderstood. So you see that, that typology, that pattern, it all fits. And you begin to tie Scripture together so you can see this. God is a coherent God. Well, in, in Matthew 7, after he got through this sermon, look at what the comment is. Remember, Matthew's writing this. Matthew heard a lot of oratory in his day. He was a government official, tax collector. The result was that Jesus 
When Jesus had finished these words, the multitude were amazed at his teachings. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Now, why do you suppose that comment's there? What would it mean that a scribe... Why does he make a difference to as one having authority and a scribe? What would a scribe do that would give you the impression he wasn't a man of authority? He'd use other people. Exactly. The rabbinic literature is filled with this. Well, Rabbi so-and-so says, and Rabbi so-and-so says, and the commentary says, and this says, and that says, and they cite hundreds of these references to, ver- to say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm just building on the guys in the past. Yet all in this sermon, the Lord Jesus said, you have heard it said by those of old time, but I say to you, boom, 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 boom. Where's the references? See? He's making himself the referent. Now, I want to articulate this carefully because it has tremendous apologetic import. Jesus uses self-authenticating authority. Now, remember that term, self-authenticating authority. Now, why do I use the word self-authenticating authority? It gets back to presuppositions. Jesus does not appeal to a standard outside of himself, ultimately. What Jesus says is that I say to you. He doesn't justify it by referring to something else, some external authority that he himself submits to. A self-authenticating authority means he is the authority. Now that is what is so offensive about Jesus Christ. That's what's so offensive, folks, about this book. Because it doesn't offer a proof for God in terms of Aristotelian logic. It doesn't offer a proof for God in terms of empiricism. The scriptures say that you can't prove anything unless you first start with God. God is the standard of the proof. God is the standard of truth. He is truth. Therefore, it's silly to say that God submits to some sort of external and higher proof. He is self-authenticating. The Word of God is ultimately self-authenticating. We can argue about it. We can have different arguments going on display. But ultimately, when it comes down to the bottom line, the Word of God is authoritative and true because it says it is. Now, that doesn't set well with a lot of people. But we can go in and, and develop that. And we did a lot when we were in creation and evolution and so on. So the third area we've covered tonight, besides Jesus' social life, his interpretation of the Scripture, is his self-authenticating implicit authority. And people picked up on that. And this comment right here by an astute observer who had listened to many, many government officials speak in public, this little comment at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is repeated several times in the Gospels. It's picked up a number of cases. But the people who are there in Jesus' day that observed him said, this guy, you know, he, he keeps saying these things and he keeps arrogantly insisting that he is who he claims to be and he doesn't intend to offer a proofs in the sense of appealing to rabbi what rabbi so-and-so said. Not like the scribes. Alright, next week we're going to move on to the modern unbelief. We've looked today, tonight, at the rejection of Jesus by the, his contemporaries who were offended at these sorts of things. Next week, we're going to go into the modern critics that you'll meet in the universities, Time Magazine, Newsweek, so on. And then we're going to tie both the modern and the ancients together and say, look, what is it that's common to all this unbelief? Something's underlying this. And we want to study what that something is. What is the focal point 
uh, where the battle is. Because when we witness for Christ, when we discuss the gospel, we're on the battle line. We've got to have perception as to, you know, where's the flat coming from? Father, we thank you for the scripture and we thank you for the indwelling Holy Spirit who teaches us. We pray that he would open our hearts to the real historic Jesus who is the Christ of the New Testament. May he open our eyes more and more to who this amazing person really is. For we ask it in his name. Amen. We'd like to discuss. Debbie? <laughs> no questions. Yeah, that's the key I think we have to understand about Christ. And I can remember as a non-Christian, I mean, I can still remember the way I was thinking as a non-Christian, is that I was always kind of embarrassed to deal with this issue. Um, I, I, I sort of intuitively knew that I had to, that this was a very respectable character of history. But on the other hand, don't get too close to him because then commitment is needed here. So you kind of keep them at arm's length, but you don't really know what to do with them. And that's why when we get into next week, you'll see what the modern critic tries to do. It's a satanic maneuver to try to make sinners comfortable living this side of the revelation of Christ. And um, um, it's, uh, it's just a case where to talk about Christ is kind of very awkward in many social circles. Um, I remember there was a class in university uh, where some of our young people went and uh, I think it was a business administration course or something the professor was teaching and they were, they, they, for the hour of the class, they asked the students who would make the best leader. What, if you were to say, define a leader, a man who would be a leader, what characteristics would you put? And so the prof would put, you know, somebody would say something and the prof would write on the board. And They came down to the fact that they wanted a leader who was brilliant but who uh, lived a normal life with ordinary people. It wasn't so regal that he, he lived with people. Well, every Christian in the group, they were saying, it was, they kind of started looking at one another because what they were basically saying on the blackboard was a profile that could only be fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And it was kind of neat. And the professor went on at the end and they were, he was asking for, well, do you know of any people historically that met this pattern? And some people would, you know, say George Washington or they'd try to say somebody. And uh, so then one of the guys was telling me, he says, ah, he says, I just plopped it out just to see what happened. And I said, I think the Lord Jesus Christ fits that. And he says, you could have, this is like the temperature in the classroom dropped about 15 degrees when he said something like that. Because that's just the spiritual environment that we live in. This is a dark world that has rejected Christ. And um, 
he, he's a discomforting person. He really is. And that's the message we need to pick up from the Gospels because knowing that, going into situations, we won't be knocked off balance. We'll know in advance that, well, yeah, this is a very uncomfortable message. And it really makes a lot of people very uncomfortable um, because Jesus won't let you stay in the middle. So what we're trying to do um, today and, and next week is to show you the counter moves that men have made. And tonight you've seen one of the count, set of counter moves. I mean, they couldn't deny that he existed in the, in the ancient times, so that, was, that wasn't an option open to them. So what they had to argue was that he, he fouled up the religious traditions of Israel. That was basically their claim, that he just didn't fit the profile of the religious things. And we believe in the traditions. And see, that's why in the New Testament, Paul keeps saying, start with Christ, not the traditions of men. And the, the whole motif here is, you can't start with human man-made traditions and wind up, in the end, coming to Christ. Somewhere along the line, the traditions are going to get chucked. And they're going to be overhauled and thrown out. Because Jesus doesn't agree with that. Those traditions have all arisen from the fleshly heart of fallen man to encrust, to take over, to obliterate the clarity of the Word of God. Paganism arose because the Gospel of Noah, the, the, the Bible of Noah, became obscure. And that's where all this stuff comes from. I mean, why do we have blood sacrifices in the Aztecs and Incas, for example? Humans are, remember the paper two weeks ago? They found this little child frozen as a mama, mummy up in the Andes someplace. And what had happened? This kid had been sacrificed, 13-year-old, something, whatever the age was, uh, and promised perfectly preserved because of the cold. And here, here's a living evidence. These people kill their children. Uh, I can't imagine sitting there, you know, like Abraham being called to slit the throat of your own child. Holy mackerel. But in satanic religions, that happens, you know? Um, the modern abortion movement is uh, people have made the analogy with, the, with worship of the god Moloch because Moloch in the Old Testament demanded your children. And you went out and you sacrificed them, burned them to death or whatever um, because you were fa- fearful of God. And this is the only way to placate an angry deity. Part of that is true, isn't it? The, the god is angry. And he does have to be placated. See, so there's an element of truth in all that paganism and that's what's left out of that original Noahic Bible. Well, tonight we saw what the people did with the real Bible. I mean, here they had, in addition to the Noahic Bible, Genesis 1 to 11, they had from Genesis 12 on to Malachi. And look what they did with it. They had so encrusted it with tradition that they missed the whole point. Absolutely, totally, it was an absolute failure. It was a farce. And what's scary about that is there was no other people on the face of the planet that had more revelation than the Jew. Not any group. And yet the group that had the most revelation nationally rejected Christ when he walked the face of the earth. So it's a sobering portrait of the human heart. And if we doubt that we're sinful, if we doubt that we're fallen beings, we just have to look at the big picture here, this big drama that's gone on, and see. So that's the thing to look at in the life of Christ is the fact that why, why didn't he, you know, I mean, when God walked the planet, why wasn't it obvious? Why didn't people flock? Why didn't they accept him as king of kings? What happened? What went wrong here? Why do people still look for a Messiah? Well, they look for one that will fit the mold that they want. That's why. They don't want that other interfering Christ because he's, you know, he interferes.
You bet he interferes. Thank God he does. So, all of this is, is just a way of looking at the life of Christ and then to be able to read the pages of those Gospels, those four Gospels, visualizing this young man. Jesus was a young man. Um, I don't know if you heard Chuck Colson this last week, but he was quoting, I think, Justin Martyr. Oz Guinness has written a book called The Call recently, and apparently he's run across a passage, a very interesting passage in one of the church fathers, that claims that in the second century, men were still using wooden plows that had been made by Jesus. I find that fascinating. And Colson said that was a fascinating example because we often think of Jesus spiritually, what he did on the cross and so on, forgetting that he was also a carpenter. And you wonder, was he a good carpenter? And the testimony is, yeah. He was so good that his plows lasted for a hundred years that he made. And men were using them. And see what that does? It says, yeah, there was a real Jesus. I mean, who made the plows? So, um, fascinating little, little tidbit of history. Neat kind of thing to throw out at a party sometime when some loud mouth gassing off about doesn't believe in Jesus. Oh, yeah? What were they plowing the fields with a hundred years afterwards? Any, any particular thing you'd like to bring up on uh, what we've done so far? Yes. Uh-oh. Oh, good, good. Good. Good, Lord. Well, the, the, one of the things that, uh, if you didn't hear what Laura said, one of the things she did there at the first, and I've forgotten to do this myself at times, and it's a discipline you have to get into. They asked her, what was the question they came to you with first? Oh yes, why God would allow so much evil. You know, they brought up the evil issue. And, and what did you say in response? Okay. And so Laura came back and said, uh, the bigger question is, well, why does God been so gracious with the evil? And see what she did there, and, and maybe you didn't realize what you were doing, but um, you were redefining the question. And, you know, back from the very start of the series, remember one of the things we kept saying is don't buy into the question. And I do that, I still do that. Somebody asks you a question, and you, you just, you immediately concentrate, now what, what's my answer to that question? rather than thinking about, wait a minute, what, is this question the right question? Because you see, if you, if you redefine the question, now you've seized control of the whole thing. Because now you're defining the question. But if you allow them to ask you the question in their definitions, 
You're just, you're, what are you doing? You're responding. You're on the defense. They're on the offense. Whoever's asking the questions is really on the offense, and who's ever trying to answer them is on the defense. So you want to change that. And a way of doing it is redefining the question or asking, answering the question with another question. Um, I, I try to do that sometimes because I'm not always sure where they're coming from. And so I, I try to feel, you know, I want to know more about what they're thinking, and the only way to know about their thinking is to ask them a question. And usually that flatters them because it shows you're interested in what they think. But at the same time, it gives you time to start evaluating where is this person coming from? What's going on here? Uh, so, uh, and plus the fact, I think if we ask the question, we do something else, um, we force some thinking to happen. Because now the other person is in the position of having to think through how they're going to respond, and that causes them to, to think, think about their beliefs. And that's what we want to do. Because it's not us and our clever little arguments that are ever going to win. It's the Holy Spirit doing things that we wouldn't even dream of thinking. I mean, he can, he can take a word that we give, and it, we're thinking about this, and we just happen to say that, and lo and behold, two months later, it was that that the Holy Spirit used. And if you've had that experience, you realize, hey, I'm not in control of this. The guy that's really playing the piano here is the Holy Spirit. You know, I'm just a key on the board. But I thought I was doing this, and he was over here doing that. So that's a, it's a healthy experience because it keeps you kind of oriented to what the Lord does. Um, we're kind of getting to the end of our time. So next week, if we'll look at, um, we'll look at the, uh, there's a big long quote in the notes. Uh, Dr. Abram Stroll, many years ago, gave this lecture. And it's one of the finest lectures on unbelief I've ever heard. Um, like I said, if you want to learn unbelief, you know, listen to a good one. And this guy's good. He's a slick historian who tries to destroy the New Testament. And uh, I've heard permutations and combinations and variations of this argument hundreds of times in the university campus, uh, many, many times in, in the literature you read about it. So watch that quote, and as an exercise, try to read through Dr. Stroll's lecture and see if you could answer him. If you were a student in that class, the University of British Columbia is where he gave this. You were sitting in the classroom, or your daughter or your son were sitting in the classroom. Um, how would you want them to respond to this sort of thing? How is a Christian? They just, you can't just sit there and close your ears. I mean, you're going to hear this, so how are you going to handle it? So try doing that. Read through Stroll's lecture and, and think about what you would respond with.